Here we go. Welcome to the Friday live stream. This is a Q&A. I'm Pastor Mike Winger trying to answer your questions to the best of my ability, give you uh, my best attempt at helping you learn to think biblically about everything because I am truly convinced that, I mean, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in countless lives that when you really learn to think biblically about things, it changes everything about your life. It affects and impacts all areas of your existence in your relationships, in your relationship with God, in your sense of peace and comfort and confidence in Christ and a bunch of other good things. So we're taking live questions from you today from the chat. The first one I've already got ready to go, and this is coming from Taste Remains. That's the YouTube channel. And uh, the question here is, what is the meaning of the parable of the dishonest manager in Luke 16, verses 1 through 13? I was having a Bible study with a friend over Discord, and we were wondering about this. Thanks. Um, So this is actually, you know, some of Jesus's parables strike us as odd. And I, I think that that's a good thing. Uh, my thought is that when it's, or I've, I've heard another, another people put it this way is that when, it, if it's weird, it's important. <laughs> if, if something strikes you though, as being strange or odd, then oftentimes it's because you should emphasize that in the scripture. You should look at that more carefully. You should examine it more thoroughly because often there's really interesting things there. It's the same passages that are odd are what people will use to try to twist to their own destruction, the scriptures. But they're also these same passages that are like, have really neat things for us. So here we go, Luke, let's read the parable. Luke 16, this is the parable, at least in the ESV, they call it the parable of the dishonest manager. And I'll admit, cause I scanned through this cause I, I just got this question a few minutes ago. Um, but I scanned through this passage and uh, the ESV is, it feels a little awkward <laughs> the way that they word it, but Here you go. Uh, He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. All right. So he's a bad manager and the boss finds out and he's going to fire him. Verse three, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not, a, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So if he's not a manager, he, he can't be a, a good laborer because he doesn't have that skill set, and he's ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Okay. Now this is the crooks of the parable. He's like, I'm going to lose everything. I have no plan for the future. I'm going to take this moment I've got while I'm still manager. And I'm going to do something that you might think is crazy, but it's going to set me up for the future. Then verse five. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. This is, this is bad behavior. Okay. This is what's the weird part about the parable. Jesus is using an example of a guy with bad behavior. And then he's going to encourage you to be like him in some way in some way. That's the important part. Let me get there. Let's patiently read through it. He said hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill, write down 50. So he cuts his, his debt in half because he's still the manager, at least temporarily. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For this. Now it doesn't mean that the master liked the guy. He was like, wow, that was pretty shrewd. Like I got it. I got to give it to you. That was pretty shrewd. And Jesus goes on for the sons of this world, the sons of this world is an insult. The sons of this world are wicked people, are people that are still lost in their sin. Uh, This is all of us apart from Christ. When we are, when we are living our lives of rebellion, we're sons of this world. So Jesus is not endorsing the man. He's not saying what the man did was good. He's using the man as an example of one thing, right? He's more shrewd 
in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The, the lesson is, the man knew that everything he had was going to perish like that. His position was gone and his future was empty. There was nothing in his future. And so he decided to do something that would seem crazy and outrageous because he cared about his future, not just his present experience. And so he did this shrewd thing. Then Jesus goes on. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That's the part that's like, wait, what does he mean? So here's a couple of possibilities. Uh, one possibility is that when Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, he doesn't mean literally use money to make friends as a Christian. Uh, it, may, it may not be that. It may be that he's talking about the parable. He's saying parabolically make friends with yourselves with unrighteous wealth of yourselves. So when you are... Um, when you are living in this life, you know it's all going to burn. It's all going to perish. You're living this life with a, with a, a mind of all that matters is who's still around, who's still my friend after we die. And so I'm, I'm obsessed with pre, uh, presenting the gospel. And I'm going to use whatever I've got in this life, the time I have, the talents I have, the treasure I have. And I'm going to use that to present the gospel to get people to know Jesus Christ. And so there's like a, a sense of urgency, a sense of it's all this is going to going to come to a stopping point. And then... There'll be nothing. You hear my cat crying over there? Quiet. <laughs> I don't know if you could hear her. What is she crying for? So Allison just left, right? She just left the house because she, she's working. And um, sometimes uh, one of our cats, usually it's Moxie, will cry because my wife leaves the house and she'll walk around the house and cry a little bit. And I mean, it's funny, but it's not something I want on the live stream. At any rate, don't know if you could hear it, but... Um, but that's the idea that, that it's possible Jesus is not saying for you to actually go and use money to make friends, um, that it's just parabolic about using everything in this life that's perishing to bring people to Christ, right? To, to get them into that eternal home. That's why he mentions that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So I want to get them the gospel of Christ and I'll use whatever I've got, whatever influence I've got, whatever power I've got. I've got an agenda, an ambition to, to present the gospel to the world. That's good because they need Jesus. They need salvation. They need this, this eternal dwelling. Um, other people would suggest this actually is about almsgiving. And Jesus is telling them, you should be uh, giving money, donating to the poor in particular, and that this will in some way cause you to have people who will receive you into your eternal home. Um, th this That could be, that's possible, right? Th that that there's something about the testimony of the church being generous and taking care of the poor. This was a big deal for the early church that we take care of the poor among you. I, I have to be really straight with you guys. Um, I think that our Western churches, uh, we don't think about this enough taking care of, not that none of us do. Okay. I don't want to paint with too wide a brush. Like, like there's a lot of people out there who are like, well, here's what's wrong with the church. And really they're just heartless gripers. And I'm not interested in falling into that trap. But I do think that there's, um, there's for many of our fellowships, there's not enough attention to taking care of the poor. And when I say the poor, I mean the Christians who are poor in your community first, and then an extension of that to other people in your community who, who, are, uh, who are hard up. Um, to say there's not enough doesn't mean there's no attention on it, but it does seem like the early church had more focus on it than we do. Remember when Paul was uh, met with the disciples and they were like telling him, just remember the poor, remember the poor. 
And that should be something for us to be thinking about. It increases our witness before the world. A lot of the early church, as we read church history, a lot of the very early church, there were a lot of poor people. And and Paul even writes in Corinthians, like not many mighty, not many rich, not many wealthy. There aren't that many of the high ups that are coming to Christ because they're so satisfied with this world, right? They're, they're getting along fine in this world, at least in their minds. So there's less um, focus on future spiritual things. And so it's interesting that there's this, this emphasis on the poor. So that could be in that parable as well. Um, I tend to think that it's just a reference to living your life in this world with real ambition to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people around you and thinking shrewdly about it. If I do this, if I do that, like not just going and shouting on a corner, but I mean, that's fine too. <laughs> I'm not knocking that, but thinking shrewdly about it. As we read the rest of the verses that you asked me to read here, uh, Taste Remains, one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Here... Um, this gives a different flavor of the parable at the end because keep in mind, there's a master and the master has all this wealth and the manager realizes it's all going to be gone. So he sacrifices his master's wealth for the sake of the future. In this sense, the master is money itself. In your life, your master is perhaps money. And Jesus is saying, give that to the Lord, give that to the purposes of God, give shrewdly and thoughtfully, donate and support ministries and outreach and targeted evangelism and that kind of thing so that that master won't control you, but the Lord will control you and you, and, and you will be a good steward and be rewarded. So I, I guess um, all that being said, it does seem like this parable is very much about finances. Um, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Walking through it with you. Susan L has a question. Is it bad to hope that Jesus doesn't come back until after I have died? Not knowing when the rapture will come, pre-poster trib, causes me anxiety. Oh, um, that's an interesting thing, Susan. So let me, let me forgive me first off, if I assume anything wrong about you, Susan. Um, anybody listening, don't assume things about Susan because if, I'm going to try and answer to the best of my ability what you've said here. It sounds to me like you have anxiety about your eschatological views. When is Jesus coming back? You don't know the answer for sure. And it worries, you're worried. He might, it might be here. It might be there. It might be there pre-mid post-trib. Um, and so you're thinking this would be easier for me if Jesus just wasn't coming back until after I died, right? Cause then I go to be with him and then I don't have to have anxious anxiety about these issues. I would encourage you that there's a, there's another thing that I would want you to be thinking, which is this. You aren't meant to know when Jesus comes back. You're not meant to know. This is this is important. And this is this is part of my teaching in, when es in eschatology is you're not meant to know. The sign, the one sign to look for is the abomination of desolation, right? And and I don't know if that's going to happen in this in this generation or in a thousand years. Now, you might be like, Mike, a thousand years, that's ridiculous. Things are so bad, it couldn't be a thousand years. But you know what? People a thousand years ago thought that too. Have some humility. Have some perspective. Jesus doesn't have to come back in your lifetime or mine. He might. He might not. He hasn't done it yet. We all wait one life for Jesus or less, right? This is how it's going to be for all of us. He's the one waiting 2,000 years. He's the one waiting, for, for all I know, 3,000 years, right? 
3,500 years, 10,000 years. I have no idea. Whatever it is, I want to be ready to live a life of fully serving Christ. And this is what I would encourage you to as well, uh, Susan, is to live a life fully serving and knowing and following Jesus Christ. Rest in his plan, but know that most generations, all generations before us, have had to live out their whole generation. And if you're not ready to do that, you're being unwise as a Christian. You should be ready for retirement and you should also be joyous if he returns right now. That's, that's the only way I can do it because I'm not meant to know the day and the hour. No man knows the day or the hour. Well, if it's, I don't know if it's, let's say you don't know if it's pre-post or, or mid-trib or whatever for the rapture, to, then that's not really relevant. You don't have to know. You don't have to worry about it. You worry about serving Jesus right now. And I'm sorry for anything I shared that was not targeted to you personally and your things you're going through. Hopefully that's helpful though. Uh, R. Fish has a question. It says, how do we respond to someone who says that we can claim all the promises in the Bible for ourselves because we are grafted into Israel or because God is no respecter of persons? Um, okay, well, let, let me take those in reverse. So let's take the no respecter of persons idea. So if someone says, I can claim every promise in the Bible because God's no respecter of persons, this is this to me, I, I'm going to, be real straight. I think that's nonsense. Like, I think that's legitimately garbage thinking. (laughs) So I'm sorry if I've offended anybody. You kind of need to be a little bit shocked at your own lack of depth on this issue. If you think God's not a respecter of persons, so then I can claim because of that, I can claim any promise he gives to anyone. Well, then Satan can claim all the promises of Christ because God's no respecter of persons. Yeah, that doesn't work. Um, then God can't actually promise anyone anything. When he says, Abraham, you know, I'll come back to you this time, this time next year and you'll have a kid. You know what? So Joe, Joe Schmo down the street can claim that promise too, because God's no respecter of persons. Like that's not what it means that God's no respecter of persons. That's not what that means at all. Let's take the other one that's a little more theologically grounded, which is the idea that you're grafted into Israel and therefore you can claim the promises to Israel. Um, that that I, I think there's several problems with that perspective. For one, let's look at the promises themselves that you want to claim. Because nobody wants to claim all the promises to Israel. Nobody, not even Israel, right? There's a lot of promises in there that are things like, and if you turn from me, then I will send in the pestilence and the devourer, and I will take you away from your land, and all these bad things will happen. Those are Those are promises. And not only are they promises, they're promises that are specifically related to being under the law. And we're not under the law. So there are prom, there, you know, we use the word promise a little too broadly here, maybe, in my opinion. There's promises to Abraham. And then I'm grafted in to the benefits of some of those promises. But that doesn't make me the recipient of every promise to all of the people of Israel throughout time. So if God gives them a land and then tells them they're going to dwell in it, I can claim that. Like I can go move to Jerusalem and be like, hey, this is my land. This is just a very vague, super broad generalization as if being grafted in means I can claim every promise or as if saying that some promises about the Messiah, that those apply to me, thinking that then I can claim every single promise I want given to Israel. And and nobody wants to claim all of them because there are several that are very negative. Yeah, so um, so I think it's just more complicated than that. A, a, a vague statement like we're grafted in so we can claim the promises. This is this is vague theology that doesn't doesn't survive a careful reading of Scripture, because if you just just read through the through the law through the Old Testament and and just try to claim every promise, 
and you realize, wait, this isn't how it works. This isn't how it works. I get, I get in Christ. I get the benefits of Christ. That's the promise I get to keep. I get to claim the benefits of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and being grafted in and to that. Uh, it's not me becoming Israel, taking everything that belongs to Israel. That That is a replacement theology thing that I think is incorrect. Um, and I would encourage you to check out my Roman series if you want more info on this. Romans chapter 11, I have a few different teachings and they got very few views on this because they're all like Israel's future prophetically and things like that that people aren't, aren't interested in. And uh, but it, But it's in the Roman series where Paul talks about this and I get into it in more detail. Hopefully that's fruitful and helpful for you. Next question is from Silas. Silas Abrahamson says, I'm afraid that I'm just partaking in confirmation bias for theism, but I find that most atheistic arguments are just straw men and ad hominem attacks. Are there any good thoughtful resources? Um, yeah, so on the internet, we are regularly accused, we meaning everybody and their grandma, is regularly accused of confirmation bias and... Um, What's the other one people people love to use nowadays is um, cognitive dissonance, <laughs> and they you can almost feel the the arrogance of people that they that they even know these phrases, <laughs> like well that's cognitive dissonance you're seeing right there, and that's confirmation bias. The thing about these phrases, cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias, is their psychological assessments of people you don't know. Um, it's possible that 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 somebody has confirmation bias. That's quite possible, but you just 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 acknowledge that you're making a psychological assessment about their mentality, and that itself is very prone to confirmation bias. You catch that? Like sometimes people are accusing others of confirmation bias because of their own confirmation bias. You disagree with me? That's because you have confirmation bias. Okay, well maybe you only think that so confidently because of your own potentially confirmation bias. I try to avoid like the psychological assessments of people when I deal with their arguments. And that's kind of what you've talked about a little bit, Silas. You, you mentioned um, the uh, most atheistic arguments are straw men and ad hominem attacks. These are not psychological assessments of people. These are assessments of arguments. And that's very true. There's straw men, meaning that's not even what Christianity teaches. Um, there are ad hominem attacks like, um, well, I don't like God then if he exists. I don't like that he did this. I don't like the gospel and, and trying to make it look ugly. And let's just be real, like that is what we see more often than not. So if you have in your head, logically, their arguments are failing, but I have a vague fear. What if I have confirmation bias? Well, that's not a good enough reason to disbelieve something. It's like logically speaking, the fear that you might have confirmation bias is not a good enough reason to believe something. I think that there's a thing that happens with people where they almost feel like they have to change their beliefs in order to be valid in their beliefs. Like I have to start at point A and I have to end up point B. I have to end up disagreeing with something to be valid. Like in my own Christian walk, I've changed my opinion on different things. And somehow psychologically, I'll, I'm going to evaluate myself here, not you. This is, you can evaluate yourself all you want. And for some reason, the areas where I've changed my mind, I tend to feel even more confident about but the areas where I haven't changed my mind, there's this, there's this like, like thought, okay, what if I'm just, you know, what if it's confirmation bias, but unless you can put a, a logical, you know, finger on it, I think you should ignore it. So I changed my mind on the topic of alcohol. I used to think alcohol was basically sinful. Just the substance itself was sinful. This is what I, what I thought. 
And then after studying scripture and really looking at things in a lot of detail, I was like, man, I was just, I was wrong. And it took me for, it took me forever to kind of bring my heart around to feeling that truth and not just mentally thinking it was true. And, um, and I feel really confident about that. You know, I used to think the King James version was probably the only real trustworthy Bible and maybe the new King James because it followed the right texts. And I was very suspicious of other things. When I did my actual research on how we got our Bible and how we, you know, how modern translations are made and stuff, I found that I was totally off, that I was following like conspiracy theories from, from back in the day. I mean, literally, that was, <laughs> I might be angering somebody right now, but that's what I discovered. I changed my mind and I really feel very strong and confident about using a variety of translations and that modern translations are by and large, very good. And they aren't trying to take Jesus out of the Bible. That's that's just, um, that's an, a straw man and an ad hominem attack. So I feel pretty confident about those things, you know. But there are areas where I haven't changed my mind at all. Like, should I just doubt that because I didn't change my mind? Maybe there's like a, a disconfirmation bias that we can experience too. Where we, where we think, if I change my mind, then I'm really right. But if I haven't changed my mind, I should always doubt the thing I believe. But that's kind of silly because your your most core beliefs, your most in the area of like how we know things, like they call it epistemology, those most core fundamental things that are holding up all the rest of your knowledge, those are things you've probably always believed and you believed without any justification because it's just like you believe that your senses work and that you're really interacting with an actual world around you. Like that's pretty core for all your other beliefs that that's actually happening. You believe that you can form true beliefs, that you can observe things and think and come to logical reason, reasoning and uh, true beliefs. And that's pretty core and there isn't a lot of justification. It's just kind of, we just look at it and go, that's just how it is. Like this is just the world we're in. God explains that well because he could create us with this ability to know things. Evolution has a harder time explaining that. At least uh, atheistic evolution or naturalistic evolution has a hard time explaining that. But these are things you've just always believed. Like, So do you get what I'm saying is... is this is not good epistemology or good good self-reflection to think that I'm afraid I have confirmation bias, therefore I should doubt something. That's not that's not smart. <laughs> that's not smart. Some of our most important and basic beliefs are things um, that you're you're you you just believe. As weird as that sounds, you just believe. Now you can test them later. You can you can ask for arguments against them. You can look for arguments for them, and that's where Christianity shines. The theology of it, the, the idea of God, the testimony of Scripture, fulfilled prophecy, the the unity of the text. Just the I'm rambling now, but just the, forgive me. But just the unity of the text of Scripture. This was an argument I heard years ago, and I would hear people argue, "Well, the the Scripture has unity, and this is a great evidence of its inspiration by God." And I always thought, like, unity. What does that even mean? But after I've spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours studying scripture in depth and in detail, I see the unity there that simply does not exist in other collected works. It just doesn't exist. Maybe a collected work by the same author can have many of the elements of unity, but not a collected work by such a variety of authors on different continents and different generations, th th over a thousand years apart in many cases. This the, from the prophecy and, and Jesus in the Old Testament to the revelation of Christ in the New to the historical verifications of Christianity, we have a mountain, a we have a planet full of mountains of support for the truth of our faith. We can be very confident. <laughs> All right, so um, 
Next question comes from uh, DRD, who says, I've been a follower of Christ for about three months now, and my girlfriend of two years, who I would say is lukewarm, is hesitant to abstain. How should I handle this? Um, I think, DRD, I'm going to give you encouragement that you, um, because your relationship with God is the most important relationship in your life, that you you absolutely abstain. And if this means you lose the relationship with her, then that's the that's the risk you take. That's the risk you take. So I have a friend who he was, he was, you know, he looks back and goes, was I really a Christian or was I not a Christian? But at some point his life became very serious about Jesus Christ. And he was very honest and real about, I want to know Christ. I want to follow Christ. I want to live for Christ. And he was sleeping with his girlfriend at the time. So he told her no more. We can't do this anymore. And he was fully convinced she was just going to dump him. But what happened is that that was part of what caused her to get serious about the Lord too, because he was engaging in this compromised behavior with her on a regular basis, you know? And so that, that wall being put up caused something to change in her life too. Now, over time, what ended up happening is she got on fire for the Lord. She, and they both ended up serving with me in ministry and um, great couple good friends. And the neat thing is, is then they got married a little while later. Uh, I don't know if it was two years later, and they got married and they said that when the adult moment here, guys, but they said when it got, they got married, it, it was like, it was like they had never been together. It was just so new and so wonderful and so pure and so great. What I'm saying is whatever the cost of following Jesus, it's worth it. But I also want to encourage you that the, there's benefits of following Christ in those areas as well. And those things are absolutely worth it. Don't be afraid of what you might lose. Jesus is like, Hey, take up your cross and follow me. Whatever you lose, you'll gain more right? Even eternally, you'll gain more. But oftentimes, even in this life, there's great restoration. So my encouragement, yeah, you're a follower of Christ for three months now. And no matter what the cost, you lovingly, graciously say, I love you. And because I love you, I've realized something about our relationship that was sex, but wasn't love, not the way it's supposed to be. And she may or may not understand, but you, you, you'll do your best. God bless you. Have, have courage. Derek Beeler, or Beller, um, I guess Beeler maybe, says, can you give your interpretation of the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, 29 and 30? Oh man, I'm honestly going to have to refer you to like my actual teaching on that passage. So in my Roman series, I go through that specifically and I'd much rather you, because this is like a hairy, complicated, um, not just complicated, but an issue where all the all the trenches are dug and there's well-defined interpretations that are on say the Calvinist side and then on the other side there's probably a variety of interpretations um so I'm not going to try and answer all that because that's like spend 20 hours of, of, of research studying and being and sitting in it and then speak to it when I have all those different views in my head so I can make sure I answer correctly um I'm just going to read it to you guys so you at least are comfortable familiar with the content and you guys can check out my Romans 8 passage uh, teaching on this topic just type Mike Winger Romans 8 and you should find it um for those whom he foreknew, that this is considered a golden chain or a step-by-step -step process. God, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, there's that, now second chain comes up again, right? Second link. He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so you, th these are all the links in the chain. It's um, foreknew, pre uh, predestined, called, justified, glorified, 
and this is generally seen by Calvinists as being like this is like Calvinist theology or this is tulip. This is the idea that you aren't making choices here. They are going to take foreknown to be forechosen, to be someone who you don't just know about someone ahead of time. You don't know about their free will choice to trust you. You you chose God chose them ahead of time. So they take foreknown to be forechosen. I disagree with that interpretation. Um, and then the predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, I'm going to say that I, we would agree with each other on there, Calvinist and myself. But the fact that we disagree on foreknew, that is going to be significant because I think God's foreknowledge includes, among other things, it includes the free will choices we make. Among other things, it's not just a simple foreknowledge view for those who are deep in this debate, uh, but it does involve God's foreknowledge. In order that he might be the firstborn among your brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. They're going to suggest that Jesus, the Calvinist, would say Jesus didn't Here's my best understanding. I never try to misrepresent anybody here. The Calvinists would say, he, whoever was predestined to know Christ, that's that predestination, that's to salvation, they would say. And then he called the predestined, meaning he doesn't call the other people. Only the predestined are called. Um, and yet I would say here, my response to that quick response would be, well, that doesn't have to be exclusive. There could be a call that goes out to all, but he also, he called the predestined, but he didn't exclusively call them. He called all people but obviously those who said yes have a special place in this. And those whom he called, he also justified. I would say that these called are the ones who were predestined and called, and they'll also be justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Anyway, there's more that should be unpacked there. That's kind of like a quick rundown. If, if you're one of the many Calvinists who likes doing video responses to me, go respond to my actual Romans teaching rather than a quick Q&A comment. I would appreciate that. Uh, just because I will cover probably some of your objections in that greater teaching. And uh, and I love you, Calvinist brothers and sisters. <laughs> I do not divide on those issues. I'm just convinced that, that Calvinism is not um, biblical, so I don't hold to it. The next question is from a Jesus-loving scientist, nice, who says, everything works together for God's glory, but I have a hard time reconciling that. With the idea that God creates people that he knows are destined for hell. Any thoughts? God bless you and your team. Um, yeah, I have several thoughts for you on this. And one of them, a Jesus-loving scientist, would be um, that in my view, God doesn't create people that are he knows are destined for hell. And that's, see, the thing is, destined is a verb. The way that in your sentence there, the way the verb is functioning, destined is something that happens to those people right? Here's me. I have a destiny that destiny in this sense is like something that you're, it's out of your control. Um, and I'm destined to hell. And that makes these people basically look like victims of a destiny that is out of their control and they don't have any choice about. And even in Romans nine, the very passage that a, a Calvinist, because I'm not Calvinist, but the very passage a Calvinist would go to, to describe these, these people who are, some would say predestined for those who hold a double predestination, they would go to this passage in Romans 9 and say, this shows that, you know, God has predestined them. But the nature of the verb is very important here. Active verb, something I do to you. Passive verb, it's not something I'm doing. It's something that's just happening. That's really significant here. All of God's verbs over the saved are active. Uh, has not the potter over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if... So he makes one vessel for honor, one for dishonor. But what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience, right? Endured passive 
with uh, God's just the one who's enduring. With much patience, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, but they're not prepared by God. That's the thing. They're not, it's not God doing the preparing. Something else is doing the preparing. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which, and then it gives personal pronoun here, he has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you catch the difference? Those who are saved are prepared by God. Those who are uh, reject God are not prepared by God for destruction. They're not prepared by God for destruction. His activity is only in the preparation of the saved. Why is that? Because his activity with mankind is to convict us of sin and draw us to Christ. And when we turn from Christ, then we do not have his preparation for glory. We don't have his salvation. We have our rejection of him. Now, I think that God predestines those whom he knows will receive. I think that that's part of his predestination. I also would agree with the generally, um, I'm going to use a fancy theological term here, Molinistic kind of approach of how to understand these things. And I do think that that's accurate. Uh, more importantly, like it's a view I already had before I heard of this whole Molinism thing, but I think it helps explain how the sovereignty and free will work together. Um, and it's just the part of it's the idea that God knew when he created them that they would reject him. He knew when he created us that we would receive him. But that doesn't mean he made them reject him. That's that's the thing. This is a huge deal. God God picked a whole world ensemble. He, he picked this creation of, of all of us and knowing many, many would reject him. And he knew that. So he endured with much long suffering, with patience, those who were prepared, not by God, but were prepared for wrath. But he labored preparing the ones who, who listened to him, who received him. So God is actively involved in the saved. He's passively involved in the unsaved because they're rejecting all of his work of salvation in their life. I think that's consistent with this. So when you ask your question, let me read your question again and tell you how I would maybe change it. Um, I have a hard time reconciling uh, everything working for God's glory with the idea that God creates people that he knows are destined for hell. I would not say destined. I would say you'd have to reword it this way, I think, to be more biblical. I have a hard time thinking everything works for God's glory and reconciling that with the idea that God creates people that he knows will reject him and end up in hell. Ah, and then we have a different question. The question isn't why would God make somebody for hell? No, they're made for him. Even the description of hell, hell was made for the devil and his angels. It wasn't made... I mean, God knew about the people, but he still made it for the devil. And it, it's just like, he it's not for you. He doesn't want you there. This changes things. So then I now have a different question. In what way does God's glory come out of the judgment of a non-believer who lives a life uh, with unrepentant sin and then dies and they stand before God and they're punished? It's the same glory that comes when a, when a, a good person deals with a bad person in any scenario of life. And so a judge like stands before someone who's done a horrible crime and then they sentence them to prison. We don't like that moment, but we like that moment, right? Like there's something terrible about it because the whole scenario that led up to it is bad. But like when Ted Bundy got sentenced, this murderer, mass murderer, like that was a good thing. That judge did the right thing. It showed a goodness in our court system that he actually got punished. So courts are good when they acquit the innocent and they punish the guilty there's like a glory in that so god's glory shown in his handling with with evil handling evil people the the problem this uh, arises if we think that the people who are being punished for sin are actually good and they're merely victims of two of, of standards that are unrealistic or un, are bad and for that i think 
I can't help that person. I, I don't know how to help a person who thinks that God's holiness is not really the standard of goodness, but that man's typical behavior is their new standard. And here you have the criminals making the laws. Okay, like if I gave the if I gave all of the laws to the criminals in prison and I said, write our new laws, they're going to write laws that keep them out of prison. And this is what humans do when we make up our own version of morality. Well, I think you should be able to have sleep with anybody you want. All that matters is being a consenting adult. Right? These, these are our laws. But these are the criminals writing laws that keep them out of prison. These aren't based on holiness and godliness and goodness. So I don't know how to rescue that person if, if they're in that place. Um, the next question is from Jonathan Hrovat, who says, given the multiple schools of thought on concepts like eschatology and Calvinism, each school has scripture to back up their contradicting views. Does that make scripture contradictory? No. I mean... Okay, so here, Jonathan, this is something I know a lot of people feel feel this heavy. And and this is an objection to Christianity um, or to Scripture, to at least the clarity of Scripture, the, the not even the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture, but rather to the unity of Scripture. They're going to say the Bible is contradictory because people look at the Bible and then they support different perspectives that are contradictory. To me, this, this argument has no power. Like, I don't I honestly don't perceive the power. And maybe it's because we've only applied it to the Bible and we haven't applied it to other areas of life. I don't know any important area of life where people don't disagree. Like look at Republicans and Democrats. Now, Republicans and Democrats have very different ideas of how government should run and what government should even be in the business of doing. Does their contradicting ideas mean that there is nothing true about what government should be doing? No. Somebody's just wrong, right? Or they're both wrong. This is this is just not powerful at all to me. Um, I know there's there, there's there's pick pick an area of thing that you like. You know, you're you're a geek about Lord of the Rings, and there's people who would debate. Um, uh, or, or how about I'll take another example: Star Trek, right? I, I would always complain that Luke Skywalker was a complaining crybaby, and then I. Uh, then I heard somebody saying that Luke Skywalker, no, it's his character arc. He starts out as a complaining crybaby and then he becomes this like sort of like thoughtful, like wise, like Jedi monk type character. And um, and I, I guess I just look at it and I go, you know, I don't think the arc worked that well. Um, he still feels kind of like a complainer to me a lot of the time. Like it's, he complained for too long. The arc was, it didn't do this. It just was like, eh. <laughs> and then maybe up at the end. And so we can argue about, does that mean there's nothing actually true about Luke Skywalker in this case and about his character arc. Of course, there's things that are true about it. It just shows humans' ability to debate and argue about everything. And then to build structures and whole organizations of thought around things that we might have wrong. So yeah, um, given the different perspectives on things like eschatology, I th or let's say Calvinism, um, I think Calvinism targets in on some very important things. I think and I've talked about this on Calvinism, I think one of the major flaws of Calvinism is that functionally they will treat, this is very important that people understand what I'm saying here because I, I have a video where I talk about this and all the time the comments reveal that either I didn't speak clearly enough or people aren't hearing me. Um, when I say functionally, Calvinism will sometimes treat faith as a work. That's a very specific claim. I'm not saying that if you go to a church, a Calvinist will get up in the pulpit and say, everybody, Faith is a work. Like, that's not going to happen. But functionally, they will treat faith as though it is a work when arguing why their principles of God's glory, of sola fide, right? right? Of sola gloria. Um, did I say that right? Solo gloria? 
<laughs> Glorio. <laughs> anyway, I forget. My Latin is a, doesn't exist. So the five solas, they're going to go through these and they're going to say, applying these consistently, we have to have regeneration that precedes faith because if you do faith on your own, you're doing this good deed on your own. See, I think they're, they're, calling, they're treating faith functionally as if it's a work and that means you can't have the act of faith. Um, or they'll say, well, why did you choose? And they didn't. Was something good about you? Because right, faith is being functionally treated as if it's a work. So then the philosophy of Calvinism, and it is a, it is a theological philosophy, it it, it uh, tends more towards um, uh, total depravity, meaning that you can't believe. You can't even believe the gospel because that would be like a work. Um, anyway, I know people are still not going to understand me on that. I, I give up. But yeah, my point here is, these, this is a, 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 a function. I can point to a specific error in thinking that I think leads to the difference between us. And that error is not scripture. Scripture doesn't treat faith like a work. It, it contrasts the two completely. This is a human error. In areas like eschatology, I would say part of it is that this is such a broad and vast uh, thing to study and look at that it, there's so many moving parts and pieces that people just tend to fall into schools without fully understanding even why they're in that school. I would say most pre-mill, post-mill, um, ah-mill, that they don't fully understand even their own views. It's just a complicated issue which tends towards different opinions. So in some places, it, it might not be contradiction. It might just be complexity or in some, in some doctrines, even lack of clarity, even in scripture. I'm just not sure. God has an opinion. I just don't know for sure what it is here. Um, but... Anyway, I've rambled on that one long enough. Um, I don't think it at all is a case for contradict, scripture contradicting because people who believe scripture contradict each other. Look, the missing thing is people. People contradict each other. It's just the way we are. Brianne Taylor says, please give advice on what to say to my 16-year-old who has told me he's an atheist. He can barely defend his position. He has basically fallen victim to internet atheists, no longer wants to go to church. Um, Brianne, I... I like if I was his youth pastor and I've done this before, I would just take him out to lunch. And I usually, here's how I would start. I would be very calm. I'd let him know, hey, I love you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not upset with you. Let's just talk about this. Help me understand your thinking here. And I would start to just dig. I would gather the reasons. And you've already obviously done some of this, but I would gather all the reasons. So why are you atheists? What, what, what? And in his case, you, you might be looking for like specific arguments for atheism. And you may have already done that and find they're not there. So then there's, there's other reasons. Why? Why? Um, chances are at that age, he found an atheist who's outspoken that he likes. Um, sadly, that's a, there's a good chance of that. So I would want to know who who he's watching online, who he's listening to, who are, who's influencing him. It could be a musician. Uh, it could be a friend at school. Um, also, at 16, with hormones and all this, the idea of atheism is very tempting for a young man because A, a 16-year-old does not contemplate death, <laughs> right? But they do contemplate all sorts of other things that they would like to do that the flesh wants. And atheism gives you reason to do all that stuff. And so I would, I would, here's where I would, I would recommend like somebody else other than a parent, because I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your kid, but me as a youth pastor, I could, I could pull the guy aside and I could just be like, yeah. So tell me what atheism does for you. How does that change your life in positive ways? And I would just dig. I would dig. What about girls? How does it change your relationship with girls? And I would just dig because probably, honestly, it's probably a sin thing. And I would want to find out. And I want help to help him see it. I would do it all in the in the environment of love and care and respect. But I would want to see what's really going on in his own life, in his own heart. And 
when someone's an atheist and they can't defend their position and they don't really know exactly why they're an atheist, it's because you're looking for reasons, but instead there just there aren't reasons. There's just motives, right? If I have no reasons, all I'm all I'm left with is motives. So find out what the motives are and address those. That would be my encouragement to you. Um, Abby D has a question. How do you know when you truly have forgiven someone in your heart? Can I say the words, but I'm unsure if my heart has changed? Yes, I absolutely believe so. I think that we can make decisions that our hearts don't agree with. And you can still make that choice. I think that I can choose to be loving to my wife, even if I'm not in a good mood and feeling like it at the moment. And that that is a great way to honor the Lord. It's, it's just, and I don't know how to cut a line here, but there's a difference between a choice to do something like I'm going to choose to forgive them, Lord. In my heart here, I'm just going to die to myself. I'm just going to say, I don't care what you say about this. Like you're going to have to just come around. Um, and then the other thing that you don't want is faking, right? Where you just lie. Um, but the difference, I guess, is uh, when I'm lying, I'm I, there's, my will is not there. I'm just saying I forgive them. I forgive them. But I'm really not. my. It's not my heart that's not there. It's my will that's not there. So I'm just going to suggest that your will and your heart or your will and your emotions. I'll put it that way. Your will and your emotions are two different things that you can treat separately. And say, I can have an attitude of I'm going to forgive you. I forgive you. I'm going to struggle with the heart issues that I'm dealing with, the emotional issues that I'm continuing to deal with. And I'll pray with those, I'll pray about those things. Forgiveness isn't always for us as humans. It doesn't feel like it's always a line in this in, in the sand where it's like, whew, boom, I've forgiven, everything's fine. Sometimes it's kind of like, I forgive you, I forgive you, but there's still like a recovery time that my heart kind of needs. But you're not holding a grudge. You don't want you don't want them to be suffering for it. You don't want them to, to make them pay. Um, you want them to be repentant and and to change, but you don't want there's no bitterness that's left. And so those would be my encouragements to you. Um, for all of us, just to remember this, your heart does not have to agree with your will or your emotions do not have to be in line with your decisions right away. That's very encouraging to me. right? Because I don't need to be led by my emotions. I need to lead them because they go in strange places and they take me to down dark alleys. I need to lead my emotions and not be led by them. And this is part of what it means to walk by faith. This is why Paul could say we're we're persecuted, right? But we're not uh, we're, uh, we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. He he talked about being grieved, but how he wasn't completely wrecked, right? Because he still had hope and he still had confidence. And this is this is where Christianity comes around and says, "Hey, heart, there are some limits you need to observe," <laughs> and that's a good thing. Um, even uh, scripture saying, you know, our hearts may condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Yeah. Let's see. Ifosa Osagi Morgan says, the Bible indicates that the mystery of God's plan for salvation was kept hidden for ages until after the resurrection. Could that mean Satan is omniscient when Jesus had to rebuke Peter? All right, let me read this again and we'll think through this. Okay, the Bible indicates the mystery of God's plan for salvation was kept hidden for ages until after the resurrection. Okay, I would I would agree with that. It's now been revealed. Uh, it was hidden. The, but that doesn't mean there was nothing known about it, but it wasn't fully understood. So it was so it was hidden in that sense. It was, it was, it was, there was something still mysterious about it. Like, what is going on here? This means that when Jesus was walking the earth... The demons didn't know what was going on. And, and this might play into your idea. Is Satan omniscient because he had to rebuke Peter? I don't think uh, theologically Satan's not omniscient. Um, 
but also philosophically like or theological which is kind of another form of theology i guess um satan can't be omniscient omniscience is a quality that god has and god alone has full knowledge all knowledge is something only god has not satan he doesn't have all knowledge but there's also something when jesus encountered demons we read about this in mark they ask jesus uh, we know who you are right you're 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 the lord we know who you are but are you here to to torment us before the time this gives us insight into the demonic realm and it shows you that they they knew who jesus was but didn't know why he had come they weren't sure what was going on they knew that 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 god had taken on this human form and was dwelling there in in, in israel this is one reason why maybe there's so much demonic attack is going on there because they want to they're they're battling it out now um Satan knows it's an opportunity to try to mess with Jesus, try to mess with God, because God has taken on a weak human form. So he tries to mess with Christ and ultimately seeks to get him killed. If Satan had known, right, what Paul writes is that if they had known, if if the if the the world rulers, but also the demonic powers had known what God was up to, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's what scripture tells us. So if Satan had been omniscient, he never would have crucified Christ because this was only helping accomplish the salvation of the world. He just saw the weak human form of Jesus and thought he had an opportunity to attack God in a way he never could before, and which was true, but it would backfire. So Satan definitely didn't know the plan. Um, then you get to the last part of your question, which is, well, then why does Jesus say to Peter when Peter's like, not so, Lord, about being crucified? Peter's like, get behind me, Satan. I don't think that Peter was possessed by Satan, right? It was Satan himself later on who entered the heart of Judas to get Jesus killed, to betray him. He wanted Jesus killed. Um, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? He's calling him the, an adversary. He's call, he, And he's doing it in the harshest possible terms because he's showing that you fighting against the cross, you fighting against the, the death, right? That is the antithesis of what you think. You want to support me? You need to, you need to embrace the cross and even carry your own cross and follow me. And this is the idea that, that is... Um, at the center of Christianity, and it's something that every Christian has to embrace, is the idea of the cross of Christ and what he hid him dying for you. But you also, you also dying to this world, taking up your cross and following Jesus every day. I'm living for Christ. This world is not my home. Like I'm just a pilgrim passing through. This is something that's very important for all of us. So I don't think that that says anything about Satan's knowledge because the whole agenda there was to undo the, the cross He's called Satan because this is like an adversarial idea. But we know Satan's actual agenda was to get Jesus crucified because he didn't know what was going on. Um, the good book has a question. And I'll, I'm going to move quick now because I'm going slow today. We're doing 20 questions. I'm only on 12. So I'm going to move fast. The good book says, why does Matthew 10, 16 through 24 have the Olivet Discourse wording, same wording as Mark 13, 9 through 13? It does not seem to fit here or makes sense and this is not found in the parallel verses of luke 9 1 through 6 and mark 6 7 through 13. i'll say this for the sake of a q a to have four different passages of scripture that you've obviously spent some homework on um and i'm familiar with the, with the issue you're bringing up i'm not going to be able to put all those up in front of everybody uh, that alone would take about 20 minutes just to like show you guys all the issues but basically you know the what some people would say is that matthew took what what was said by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and just moved it 
he moved it over to a different place. And some people would say that that's okay. Um, I think that like Mike Lycona would probably say that that's okay, that this was like a standard thing that um, that historians and people who are writing would do back then where you, you would take, they're really the words of somebody, you're just transposing or moving the, the speech to a new location. Others would say that's a problem. This is Lydia McGrew would say, Dr. Lydia McGrew would say that that's a problem. Like that's, that's not, that's not something they would do. And it's not something that would be accurate. Um, my thought on this for what it's worth, the good book would be that Jesus just said something with almost the same wording and that, that this is because there's a connection between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. There's a connection between the mission he was sending, sending them on temporarily while he was on the earth. He's like, go do this for now. There's a, there's a connection between that mission and then the ultimate mission of the church who's doing these things until Christ returns. So that this could have been a very deliberate, purposeful thing so that we would see there's a connection because we want to look at the disciples and see a microcosm of us following Jesus in this world today. That would be my my thought on that. Um, and the fact that you say it's not found in Luke 9 and Mark 6, I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that there's lots of things Jesus says that would not have been found in various locations. Jesus was with them for years and we have this tiny little chunk of information about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there's going to be tons of stuff that none of them recorded. I'm not concerned about that personally. So yeah, there's there's my answer. I would I would keep looking for more answers, and you don't have to take mine as like the whole end all be all of everything. Um, yeah, faithful way number thirteen says I enjoy mindful meditation for mental health reasons and want to involve God in this, but I've heard this type of prayer is wrong. Why couldn't I memorize a psalm and repeat it in prayerful thought? Faith away, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by mindful meditation, so I'm afraid to comment on whether it's appropriate or inappropriate. Um, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on this because I, here's the thing: I'm not gonna answer your question, but let me talk about meditation. The idea of meditating, or like old school meditation, the word meant thinking. At least that's my understanding of it. Right? As you read the word itself, it means like in in you know, in the Bible, the word means to ch to chew the cud. This is just like the, the the original meaning of the idea of the word. Chew the cud, like an animal, like, oh, 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 chews cud, puts it down, brings it back up, chews it. You're actually working on thoughts. You're working on ideas. So we would use the word thinking, right? Like when I say I'm meditating, I'm thinking. But in Eastern religious circles, and which, which America has been infatuated with for some time, and the Western world has like this little fantasy attitude towards eastern meditation it's it's sometimes taken as though it's a spiritual exercise not just a, i'm thinking but it's like a spiritual exercise where you're like sort of doing things that are hard to explain and you're contacting things and you're accomplishing things that's where i get concerned i don't know what that is i don't know what that's about I think it's great to meditate in the biblical sense of like thinking about things and pondering things. And I think it's fine to even think of this about the same thing over and over again. I think that that can be okay if, if you're actually are in, your thoughts are engaged in some sense. I think it's okay to go out and sit on the grass and look at the sky and hear the birds and listen to the wind flapping the leaves against each other and to just be like, God, you're amazing. And just sit there. Be like, God, this is it's beautiful here. I just like it here. And just sit there and be peaceful. And maybe you're not even thinking much. But when it gets connected to weird Eastern spiritual practices, that's when I get concerned. What you mean by mindful meditation, I'm not entirely sure um, what you mean by that. 
So yes, can you memorize a psalm and repeat it in prayerful thought? I suppose, yes. Just don't be weird. <laughs> Sorry if I'm not helping. David Celayo says, uh, what are some good resources or good sources to look at to start studying apologetics? Okay, there's two different, in, in general, there's two different kinds of resources for apologetics. Maybe I'll give, no, I'll give two. Okay, there's general resources. This is a great starting point, general resources. So you go and you look something up and you see what like the Got Questions article says. I like Got Questions. I think they have great content. I don't agree with everything. They don't agree with everything. I, whatever. I think they have great content. I would definitely recommend checking their stuff out. So you get the got questions and answers. A few paragraphs answering your question. You need these general resources. These are important because you, when you start get started in apologetics, you have a million questions. Then there's the more in-depth resources. And the more in-depth resources is like somebody writing a whole book on one issue. You can't read all of these. So here you find there are some issues you really care about, some issues that you think you need to be better equipped in. Those are the ones where you want to go for the more in-depth resources. And so online, you can find lots of this stuff. Like I mentioned, Got Questions is there. Um, uh, that's like a real, it, it's not dumbed. It's not a bad resource. It's like a good resource, but it's not the depth, okay? But if you want to get into like, say, um, what's wrong with um, the scholarship that wants to cut the scriptures into little pieces as if, as if the gospel authors are just compiling a bunch of random things that didn't really all happen and they're venting a bunch of stuff. Like I think Richard Bauckham is a good resource for that, but it's like you can read a, you can read a whole 300-page book, 400-page book on that one issue. So there's those two, two different kinds of resources. General resources are easier to recommend, okay? So like I do think I like a lot of Norm Geisler's stuff, okay? He has his like every... Uh, every there's a book that has the word skeptic in the title. I have it back there somewhere. Norm Geisler has a resource on that. that that's like great. Um, um, hard sayings of the Bible. There's another general resource about the Bible. But to be honest, I've not found that super useful. Um, anyway, there, look for the general resources. And then for special resources, then it just depends on the issue. It just depends on the issue. If you want to dig deep on the Kalam cosmological argument, you can look up William Lane Craig and his work on that. Um, for instance, if you're going into... Uh, other issues it just it just turns into like a thousand names for a thousand different issues and that's so yeah i can't just give a resource because uh, there isn't one when you want to go deep um bue barkley says is it sinful to be inspired by historical people in and outside the bible should i instead be exclusively inspired by the holy spirit who enable believers by the, or by the father um, no, man, be inspired by people. Hebrews 11, let me encourage you this. Hebrews 11 gives a list of people that are meant to be inspiring, right? You know the passage, it's the hall of faith, right? By faith, Abraham did this, by faith, this, by faith, that person. And it just gives a list of them. Then it gives you encouragement that they should inspire you. Okay, so Hebrews 12, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that cloud of witnesses is not people watching you from the afterlife. Weird teachers say this stuff. <laughs> That's not it. There's no one watching you from the afterlife in Hebrews 12.1. The cloud of witnesses is the lives that these people lived where like Abraham left all that he knew and went out to a land he didn't know to follow God. Uh, Rahab hid the spies and she honored God in that even though that was a very scary moment for her. There's these, these powerful witnesses and examples. Their life witnesses to you an inspiration to do what? To lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so easily, so closely to us or so easily to us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is the inspiration. Now, here's my encouragement. 
it's okay, I think, to find a business leader who's done a really good job and say, I find that inspiring. It's okay to find a who's outside the Bible, who, uh, someone who's a, a really good father, and you find them very inspiring. But if their eyes weren't on Jesus, then there's an element of their life that is the opposite of inspiring. And you just need to know this. You can't have the model for your life be somebody who does not know and follow Christ because they're modeling for you a life apart from Christ. So even if they have skills and they're good in some areas, you really need witnesses that help you set your eyes on Jesus. That's very important for you. Uh, that's really important. We become like our mentors. We look up to these people. And so, yeah, I would, I would encourage you with just that, just that idea. You can learn something from anybody. And that's a, that's a, that's a wisdom thing. I should be able to learn from it. Even the fool can teach me lessons, right? Um, but my mentors or my examples or my inspirations ultimately need to be believers. They don't have to be pastors. They need to be Christians who are, have their eyes on Christ. And where on earth even am I? Catherine, your question is, a loved one of mine, a believer, is going through a season of mental anguish. What are some practical ways that I can help and encourage them? Um, well, my first encouragement is to try not to feel like it's your responsibility to fix them. I like the way you word your question. Uh, what are some ways I can help and encourage them? And I would say that uh, giving them help and encouragement that doesn't require a response. That that's that's kind of like a no pressure s scenario where where you're there to help and lift them up and encourage them, but but they're not expected to perform for you. That's really healthy. Someone who's going through major hard times, it's healthy if they have people that they want to lift them up, they want to raise them up, they still want to have that high goal, right, for their lives, but they're not requiring a performance. They really want to see people improve and help them in some way. And there's just like a different mentality that comes when we approach people like that. In my opinion, I think that Proverbs also helps us with this when it says like that a man's only a man's heart knows his own sorrow, that there's, there's, there's stuff that people go through that, um, that you just don't, you just don't understand. And so coming alongside to assist and help, like saying, lean on me, it doesn't mean I'm the heart surgeon who's, who knows everything that's going on with you and I'll fix you. It's more of a lean on me thing. Um, that might be a better way. Galatians puts it this way, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ that this is, we're going to bear each other's burdens. Like, hey, can I can I bear some of your burden? So maybe for your friend, this means just listening to them. Maybe it means getting together with them and not talking about the issues, giving them like someone to hang out with who isn't going to talk about the issues. Everybody's different. And I would just try to look at their needs and meet their needs. And if you take fixing them off the table, then there's no anxiety on your part trying to force things. You're just trying to identify and meet needs and bless people. That would be my encouragement. Um, if you can encourage them with scripture that gives them help without burdens and expectations, that's a really great thing to do. If someone's especially weak, I would just want to encourage them. I would just want to encourage them and not talk about their performing if that makes sense. I hope that's good wisdom for you. Those are my thoughts for what they're worth. Uh, 17, Jay Tolis says, how is it that when Jesus feeds the 4,000 in Mark 8, the disciples don't seem to remember him already doing the same thing in Mark 6, the 5,000? Um, I, I think that might help with, what might help with this is between Mark 6 and Mark 8, who knows how many meals there were. So I imagine when Jesus broke the bread that the very next meal, they were like wondering, is he going to do it again? <laughs> wouldn't you be you're like i'd be wondering like wait do we need to get food or is jesus just going to do that every time now 
But what probably happened between Mark 6 and Mark 8 was a number of meals where Jesus did not multiply the bread, giving people the impression that that's just not something he's normally going to do. So, hence into Mark 8, in that scenario, they may have realized, I don't want to put an assumption on him of what he's going to do here. So, that might be... Uh, might be the situation. In addition to that, when Jesus feeds the first group, they're Jews, right? They're Jews probably on their way to Passover. When Jesus feeds the second group, there's a lot of Gentiles. And it may have simply been the Jewish expectation that the Messiah is not here to feed Gentiles. Think about that. There may have been like a kind of a bias that was there. The Messiah, right? He feeds us. Like the bread in the wilderness, like that's for the Jewish, the Jewish people. But Jesus is showing the extension of his ministry to all people. That he's the bread of life for Jew and Gentile, for everybody. So there may have been that assumption there as well. Uh, Angela Budoin says, hey Mike, thanks for your awesome, humble, and humorous ministry. It is awesome and humble and humorous, isn't it? <laughs> uh, if Jesus was beaten unrecognizably, how can we be sure they checked the right tomb? Um... Oh, Bod Bodwin. She gave me her pronunciation at the end there. Her name is pronounced Bod Bodwin. All right, Angela Bodwin. I should know it's Bode, uh, Bo. Anyway, I should know that. But anyway, so Angela Bodwin. Uh, yeah. um, how did they know it was the right tomb if he was beaten un unrecognizably? Um, the... The... the I have several answers that are all flooding into my head all at the same time here. Let me try to organize them real quick. Um, so there's one issue is this. Um, did they have to know it was the right tomb to know that Jesus had resurrected? Um, and the answer to that actually is no, because you actually had Jesus alive with them. Right? So if you have a real Jesus who's living and breathing and alive, then you don't even actually need to know that the tomb is important historically speaking, that we have an empty tomb. But for them in the first century, they have Jesus alive. Um, you could also then just go on and check various tombs. You could just check different tombs. Okay, so that's that's important as well. The, however, how did they know? Um, the Gospel of Mark in particular tells us that it was these women who witnessed. Okay, here, here's, here's the background. Quick background. In the first century, women were not seen as good, reliable witnesses. It was actually embarrassing to the early church that the first witnesses of Christ and the empty tomb were women. This was embarrassing. Um, this is seen by many as evidence that it's historically what really happened, that the that it was women who discovered the tomb empty, that that's because that's just what happened. Let me add some more details there that might help as well. In Mark, Peter seems to be the primary witness for, for Mark and for his writing here. And Mark, historically, we have evidence from the church fathers that Mark actually traveled with Peter. He was his interpreter. And then, and then several of them say he wrote down what Peter had said. So Peter seems to have been the primary source. But Mark acting kind of like a guy doing history, he seems to indicate in his gospel who his different witnesses are for when Peter's not around. Because Peter wasn't always around. And one very important moment where Peter was not around, where we're going to want to know who, who witnessed this, is when Peter betrayed Christ, denied Christ, and he went, and went off and was weeping. And then when Jesus dies, we have the women being mentioned by Mark. He mentioned several of them. Then when Joseph takes Jesus' body and lays him in the tomb, who's alongside? The women. The same women that Mark mentions. Then visiting his tomb the next day, who do we have? The women. And they're not just present, women are present, but their names are given. Now, Richard Bauckham, talking about apologetic stuff, Richard Bauckham did his book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, where he 
does a ton of scholarly homework on this to try to suggest, long story short, when Mark records unnecessary names, it's because he's trying to tell you this person is my eyewitness behind this account. That's why most blind people don't have names unless it's blind Bartimaeus because he was probably still accessible to the to the people of the time. The names that are given are probably of people who were accessible to the original readers and hearers of Mark's gospel. And the names of the women are given. This is like a first century historical connection to the empty tomb. Uh, we also have in Matthew a, rec a record that they actually sent guards to the tomb. To the tomb. Which means that people are monitoring the death of Christ, monitoring where his body is. It wasn't only Joseph, Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and the women, uh, Nicodemus, um, but there was also others. So, yeah, the, the tomb was then verifiable and was able to be looked at later. And if they thought they had the wrong tomb, they could just pop open every tomb they want until they find the body. So there's some answers for that. Um, I hope that you find it helpful. You don't need to recognize Jesus as like, I saw him yesterday and I saw him today and that's the same guy. You can also just recognize what they did to him. It's not like they had a whole bunch of crucifixion victims that were fresh from that day, right? There was just three people and two of them had their legs broken and one did not. If you went to a tomb and there was a broken crucifix or a, a, a dead body that had been crucified with no broken legs, you'd be like, that was Jesus. It was actually easier than identifying him. Um, other ways. All right. Tabitha Littman says, if eating from the tree of knowledge is what gave Adam and Eve the knowledge of good versus evil, how could they have been expected to know that disobeying God was evil before they ate the fruit? Yeah, Tabitha, I don't take it as being that broad personally. So I've given this some thought myself as well. And I, I'm just like you. I go, wait, like if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good, if you don't know what good is, then you don't know moral right and wrong. If you don't know moral right and wrong, then how does it make sense when God goes, don't do this? Why are you like, wait, because that would be wrong? Like, it wouldn't make sense. So I think that the knowledge of good and evil is a much more, um, is much more about going from innocence to sinfulness. So there was an awareness of some sense of right and wrong, but it was like a child who has never stolen anything. Right. Like they, there's a sense in them, even like I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't steal. But then when I, when I do steal, it's like, now I've, now I've done it. Now I've been there. Now, you know, now, you know, and I think that that that's an element of what's going on personally. I think that with the tree, they eat of the knowledge of good and evil. They've not only have they eaten of the fruit that were forbidden. So this is the thing that's going to bring death, but there's been like an experience of true and genuine rebellion against God. And perhaps the way that they were, they were, raised and wired, this was the only potential bad thought or wrong thing that would ever have even occurred to them to do because it was that much innocence. But now perhaps it's the flood of every potential impure activity and temptation and thought. And it's just, all of man is just messed up. Uh, Mason Leggett says, yo, Mike, love your ministry. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I appreciate all, appreciate all you guys being here. For our Q and A's, um, I'm sorry, I can't get to everybody's questions. We get questions every day, every week, every day, and I'm not able to answer even most of the emails that we get nowadays. And that's, that makes me sad. Okay, I'm sad that I can't do that, um, but uh, but I appreciate you guys, every every one of you, and I'm grateful that you are um, you're just watching and being blessed. And here's what excites me: Can I tell you my, my secret agenda? Is that this might sound arrogant, but I certainly don't mean it that way because this is based upon my confidence in scripture and the word of God and the truth of Christianity. 
I think that if I help you to learn to think biblically about things and to, and to love the word of God and to, and to want to follow God that much more in your life, that you will be the one who changes the lives of people around you. And so I think by changing one, we change, uh, we change 10 or a hundred. And I think you guys are the ones and you're going to go and change the tens and the hundreds and the thousands because it does change your life. You get excited, you get confident, you, you, you get serious about the things of God. All right. Question is, uh, I was wondering if you had anything to say about secular music. Is it okay to listen to what draws the line of something a Christian shouldn't listen to or watch? I, I used to think secular music was basically bad. Um, and it was even to the point when I was a teen, I was, I was like 20, 21, where I felt like conflicted about things like Bach or Beethoven, although oddly enough, I didn't know at the time, right? Bach was, um, was a, was a Christian. <laughs> and so, um, but some of these guys that I just felt like conflicted, even listening to any of their music. And what the ironic thing is, it never occurred to me that when I was watching movies, I was hearing secular music, like the majority of the film. But I didn't notice it because I wasn't focusing on it. But I wouldn't have turned on a secular station. I wouldn't have listened to any secular music. Um, and then combine this with a genuine and proper concern with things like the ungodly messages coming from music. Because we have to, like, let me give you the summary. I was wrong to think that all secular music was evil. Okay. But the counterparts who were Christians that I knew who didn't care what they listened to. It could be gangster rap full of foul language talking about murdering people. And they would, they were like, well, it's just music. That is also wrong. And I think that what seems clear to me is if you ignore the genre of music, secular versus Christian, and instead you focus on the message of the music, it becomes a lot easier to decide what you'll listen to and not. Right. So like there's, and I don't listen to much music, uh, so I can't give many examples here, but there's clear examples. I'm sure you guys can think of where it's music that like, this is just, it's, it's preaching and, and promoting wickedness and sinfulness. Like it's just put to music. I like, well, how is that not just sugarcoating sin? Okay. That, that seems clear to me. Why would I listen to this? Um, but then on the other side, you know, like you're watching toy story and they're saying like, you got a friend in me. And I'm thinking like, no, that's not Christian. I can't listen to it. You got a friend in me. I'm like, what? <laughs> I can't listen to that. Or I want to sing lean on me. And I'm like, well, is that a Christian song? He's a lean on me when you're not strong. Like, I don't know if I can say that or sing that. Is that? And I think that this is like, what am I worried about here? That's like saying when a secular person, person says good morning, it doesn't count because they're not Christians. <laughs> like, look, if you could be a secular person, write a great love song. That's like, a good love song, a healthy, proper love song. And we can celebrate that and we can enjoy it. You can cook food and you can do all these things. The thing that makes music different than like other things like building bridges or you're buying a car made from someone who's not a Christian or something and you don't care is that music carries messages. And so I'm going to say, if the message is wicked, then we probably should avoid that. If the message is positive, then it's great. If the message is neutral, right? Like the happy birthday song isn't really positive. It's just a thing, you know? Um, then who cares? Enjoy it. Go ahead. If, if it's neutral, if it's not positive or negative, then I consider it part of the creation God has for us to enjoy. And um, that's my current perspective on it. And I think that my previous idea of Christian music only, not secular, that that kept me safe in a sense, but it also made me a bit judgmental of other people who were perhaps actually using more wisdom than me because I was just, I was erring on the side of safety. And then it in some cases caused some divisive kind of attitudes between me and other Christians that I, I think 
was unhealthy. Um, oh, I'm, we're not going to invite Mike to that thing because you know we want to we want to play um, secular music and you know we want we want we don't want him there for that reason. And that kind of divi- division is actually a pretty serious problem in the body of Christ. People are dividing over their convictions. This is what Romans 14 says not to do. So we should be careful about that. But yeah, those are my thoughts. Take it song by song, not genre by genre. It's not, there's are Christian songs, Christian songs that are not good, <laughs> morally speaking. And so um, those are my thoughts, Mason. Um, it makes life complicated because you have to take it one issue at a time. But sometimes life is complicated. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Love you very much. Appreciate you. And I will see you Monday. I'm doing, oh man, this Monday, the Mark series. Um, I'm handling a pretty sensitive issue. It's an issue where I think that Calvary Chapels have made a pretty big mistake in the past. And I'm going to try and talk openly and honestly about that issue. And um, hope I don't lose any friends. (laughs) So I'll see you guys Monday at 1 p.m. as we continue doing eschatology stuff in the Gospel of Mark.